you could take your Bibles and open with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 as we resume our exposition of Luke's gospel. Our passage this morning is Luke 23, picking up at verse 26 and going through verse 31. Follow along with me in your copy of God's word. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come as your people. We come ready to learn, ready to grow. Lord, our, our flesh is ever against us, Lord, and the distractions of our lives, of this world, are ever seeking to take us aside. But at this time, may your spirit guide us to be focused, Lord, to have our hearts set upon Jesus, to know him, to draw near to him, to, to grow even in our understanding of the sufferings that he undertook for our sake so that we who deserved only wrath could know grace. So that we who deserved only condemnation could know the promise of your favor in eternity. Oh Lord, lead us now. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen. What would it be like if we were called to witness a crucifixion today? It's interesting that even just here in the state of Alabama over the past week, there's been a great debate about the death penalty. But what was the death penalty like in times past? You know, you could look back over the course of human history, and, and of course there are stories, uh, numerous stories about different people who, who did amazing things, that accomplished amazing things for the betterment of their fellow man and the positive progress of entire nations. But there are even a greater number of stories of horrific battles and wars and innumerable instances of man's inhumanity to man. In the darkest parts of these accounts, you can find out how different tribes and nations develop their means of torture and execution. The History Channel today even, even has a, a series called Dark Marvels, which explores the ways that people have been tortured and executed throughout human history. By the time of Christ, the Roman government had settled exactly how they would deal with serious crimes. And just during the first century alone, Rome crucified literally hundreds of thousands of people. Some estimates 
say it exceeds a million. The torturous method of being nailed to a cross was a slow, painful death that itself served as a deterrent to criminals. And the open display of crucifixion was a horrifically powerful reminder to any populace that Roman rule was not to be resisted. Now as we begin this morning to explore these very heavy passages on the crucifixion of Christ, I do want us to keep one very important thing in mind. Remember that we have a God who is Lord of all of human history. Indeed, the Bible teaches us that he directs even the heart of kings to accomplish his will. And as we think of this horrific and torturous death that Jesus is about to experience, I want us to keep one very important thing in mind. God chose this. God in his sovereignty and providence chose the time at which his son would come to earth. In eternity past, in the covenant of redemption, when Christ agreed to accomplish the salvation of his people, he knew what kind of of time he would be born into. He knew what kind of place he would be born into. He knew what kind of life he would live. He knew the environment in which he would minister. And he knew exactly the death that he would die to secure our salvation. And so as we go through these next several sermons, I want us to remember this one thing. Jesus was not some passive victim of Rome. He was an active savior of mankind. As an act of divine love for his father and for his people, he chose the cross. It was his choice. Not Pilate's, not the Roman emperors, not the religious leaders. It was Christ who chose the cross. So let's look at this text in two points this morning. We're going to consider first the foreshadowing of the life of discipleship. The foreshadowing of the life of discipleship. When we consider the parallel accounts in the other gospels, we see that there is quite a bit that has taken place here that Luke does not detail. Remember that Jesus has been very roughly treated since the time of his first arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jewish temple guards have mocked him and beat him. The Roman soldiers have been similarly harsh. We know from Luke's account that Herod and his men mocked and bullied Jesus as well. We know that Pilate committed him to being scourged, which scourging was a form of being whipped that was so brutal, sometimes the subject died. Scourging consisted of using a whip with numerous leather tails with sharp glass or metal objects at the end of each one of those those pieces of leather. And And the subject was whipped in such a way that they would lay this whip upon their back and twist and pull in a way that literally ripped the skin off a person with every blow. Jesus survived his scourging. And yet even after that, the Jewish leaders and their mobs still demanded the release of Barabbas and the crucifixion of Jesus. Having symbolically washed his hands of the blood of Christ, Pilate handed Jesus over to the soldiers to carry out that sentence. And at this point, the soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium to prepare him for his march to the cross. And there also, Matthew 27 tells us that they decided to make a mockery of him. In Matthew 27, verse 27, it says, The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. 
The only limit to what they could do to Jesus was that he was not allowed to be put to death before the appointed time on the cross. Well, that left them a lot of room. The Jews had hailed Jesus as their Messiah King, so these soldiers decided to mock Jesus as the King of the Jews. The text tells us that they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. They weaved together a crown of thorns and pressed it down upon his head, piercing and cutting his scalp. And to complete the grotesque picture, they put a reed in his right hand as a scepter. And then Matthew 27 tells us they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail the King of the Jews. I want you all to think about this with me. Of all the men in the world that these soldiers may have encountered, this man was the king. He was not just the king of the Jews. He was the king of all creation. And therefore, Jesus is their king. He is their king. This was the God who spoke the world and all it contained into existence. This was the God who flooded the entire earth with water to cleanse it of its wickedness. This was the God who brought his people out of their captivity and decimated Egypt with incredible wonders. This was the head of the heavenly armies. This is the one who has raised up nations and brought them low, who had rained down fire on the wicked and protected the needy. In his unveiled glory, no sinful human being could have even looked at him and lived. But here he was, bloodied and beaten before these hardened soldiers who were wickedly mocking his kingship. If you had had all the power of God, would you have suffered that at their hands? You know, with a single thought, Jesus could have wiped these men out of existence, but he did not. Such was his love for his father and his dedication to complete his father's will. He did not wipe those men out of existence. He endured their mockery. And even when their mockery gave way to cruelty, he didn't protect himself against them. He didn't retaliate against him against them when they took the reed out of his hand and beat him in the head with it he did not stop them when they spat on him just as the jews had done in the hours before he was steadfast as these soldiers poured out all their blind rage upon jesus his only response was to continue to the path the path of the cross that is the glory and steadfastness, brothers and sisters, of our Savior. The King enduring that for the sake of love. That is where our text picks up this morning. As they led him out of the praetorium, Jesus would have been in a horribly weakened state after all the torture he had endured. When a man was being led away to be crucified, there was a squad of four Roman soldiers that were assigned to each prisoner. It was called a quaternion. It was their responsibility to lead the accused through the city to the place of crucifixion. Now Jesus would have been forced to carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, but he was in no condition to carry such a heavy load. So seeing him falter under it, the soldiers invoked a law that allowed them to force any non-Roman to carry their load up to a mile. And the bystander that they happened to grab that day was Simon of Cyrene. And the text tells us that he was just coming in from the country. 
Now, Cyrene was an old Greek settlement on the coast of North Africa, and tradition holds that Simon was of African descent and that this episode resulted in him being saved. There are some indications in the text that point us that way. Mark 15, 21 notes that Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander, who were evidently known to be disciples of Christ by the time Mark wrote his gospel. There is an Alexander that is mentioned in Acts 19.33 and in Romans 16.13. Paul says, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. So it's a possibility, it's a possibility that Simon, being the father of Rufus and Alexander, as the text tells us, was a man who did come to faith in Christ and his sons subsequently came to Christ and were very important figures in the early church. I want us to pause here, though, and I want us to think for a moment of Simon's experience. Imagine with me. You have your two boys with you. You're going into Jerusalem. Perhaps, you know, to go to the market. Perhaps to, to, to see to a business, business arrangement. Perhaps to deliver a message. But you're going into the city and you find that the city is in an uproar. And you don't quite understand it because this is supposed to be Passover. This is supposed to be a worshipful time. But the city is in an uproar and the streets seem to be filled with people. Some weeping and crying out and others shaking their fists like an angry mob. Imagine the soldiers ripping you away from your two boys. Simon likely had no idea why so many people were so angry with this badly beaten man. Remember that scripture tells us that his appearance was marred beyond that of any other. He likely had no idea why so many people were angry. They laid the cross on his back and then it was his responsibility to follow Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem. Simon would have heard all the mocking shouts of the religious leaders and the mob. And he would have also seen the people who were angrily spitting and jeering, as well as those who were weeping and trying to reach out and touch Jesus in their extreme grief. Maybe it dawned on him within a few moments that this was Jesus of Nazareth, the one he had heard so much about. But you can almost hear as the light comes on, the questions coming. Why would this miracle worker and this righteous teacher be treated so badly? Why was he being led away to be crucified? Those are questions that Simon probably didn't get answered that day, but as he left Golgotha with the stain of Christ's blood from the cross on his shoulders, he was undoubtedly moved. Imagine what it would have been like to carry the cross of Christ that day. Now, as we think about that, as we contemplate this reality of Simon the Cyrene, we should remember two things. Number one, we see here a picture of the condemnation that we all deserve. Jesus didn't deserve the cross. We did. We do. The heavy burden of our sin and our guilt belongs to us. We are the ones that should be carrying the cross. But Jesus is the one who went to Golgotha and died on that cross for us. Secondly, in this we also see something of what Jesus taught during his earthly life. We are all called to take up our cross if we are disciples of Jesus. 
Back in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He said the same thing later in Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then on the actual day of his crucifixion, we have that very picture. Simon the Cyrene, who we believe at least became a disciple of Christ, if he wasn't already, carrying his cross, following Jesus. Everyone in the first century would understand what this means. To take up your cross meant to begin your death march. And we want to be careful here. Our cross is not just any problem that we have, you know. I've referred to some people referring, you know, when they have the flu, when they have the sickness. Oh, that's just my cross to bear. You know, if if I have a difficult marriage or a rebellious child or some other physical impairment. But that's not a cross. Inwardly, taking up your cross means being willing to die to yourself and your personal desires and priorities to live wholly for Jesus Christ. That's what it means inwardly. Outwardly, the call to take up our cross is the daily intentional embrace of self-denial and suffering, if need be to identify with Christ, to represent him in this world, and to die for his sake if it be so ordained. That's what it is to take up our cross. And believe it or not, brothers and sisters, Scripture tells us over and over and over again that the path of the cross is the path of joy. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it? Pastor Sean, how, how can you say that being brutally tortured and suffering a horrible death is a path of joy. Well, I say that because, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what it was for Christ. Remember what Hebrews chapter 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you go a chapter later into Hebrews 13, Picking up at verse 12, it says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's our joy. Yes, going through something torturous because we bear the name of Christ would be hard. It's not something that would make us happy, happy, happy. But brothers and sisters, do you understand that in Christ we have joy that is very distinct from happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is something that that is a fountain of the soul that is due to the grace of Jesus Christ operative in us. Joy is something he gives as a fruit of his spirit's work in us. We are to obey God and to live for the glory of his name by walking that same path that Christ has walked before us. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified in him. The path of the Christian is one where we are called To be willing to suffer as our Savior suffered. Now if we stop and really consider that, we begin to get convicted in our own minds and hearts, right? 
Because reality is that there are times we actively make the decision not to speak of Christ, not to bear witness, not to live our Christianity too openly, lest we face the disfavor of men. There are times that we actively choose self over Christ in the moment. Is that taking up our cross? Is that following our Lord? Is that depending upon His strength and His grace and trusting in His promise of joy? The good news for us, brothers and sisters, is that Christ is a patient Savior. He is faithful to complete His work in us, to bring us conviction of sin, to restore us, to give us courage in the moment to be exactly who He's called us to be and do. It's just a matter of trusting Him. If you're doing it right, if we are doing it right, it's going to be hard, but that's our calling, right? To do hard things. This world is not our home. The moment we trusted in and believed in Jesus Christ, we became strangers and sojourners and, and aliens here. Right? We are here now on our way home. And the path we walk in this life, in the midst of this evil world, this sinful generation, it may be a hard one if we're doing it, but it is the right one. And in Christ, it is the path of joy. Will you trust him? Do you trust him? That takes me to my second point, which is the warning of judgment for the unrepentant. The warning of judgment for the unrepentant. In verse 27, we see that amidst the angry crowd, there was also a great multitude of people and women who were following after him, mourning and lamenting. And their sorrow is rightly poured out for this man of sorrows. They knew he was an innocent victim, and the cruelty they saw Jesus enduring caused them deep lament. But even as Jesus is suffering the unjust treatment of men, he decides to warn them about the righteous judgment of God. And isn't that just in itself amazing? Here he is already so badly beaten and tortured that they had to get someone else to help him carry his cross. And as all these people are mocking him and jeering him and others are grieving for him and mourning over him, he's not concerned as much for his own judgment that he is suffering at the hands of men. He is concerned for the judgment of God that will fall upon these people. What a heart of love. In verse 28, he speaks directly to the women who are mourning and weeping him, for him. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. What he's effectively saying to them here is, you're weeping over the wrong person. He wasn't rebuking them, but he was telling them that if anyone deserved their tears and their pity, it was the people of Israel, not him. And thus his words are a warning to all the ungodly, not these faithful women. And this is an important reminder for us, brothers and sisters. Sometimes when we come to the subject of the crucifixion of Christ, it can stir in us a sense of pity. 
In many churches, and unfortunately especially in the Catholic Church, there are parts of the liturgy and statues and icons that are all designed to evoke these feelings of pity and grief and sympathy for Jesus. The whole idea of the seven stations of the cross is exactly for this purpose. Even in Baptist churches, when we have, when we have a Good Friday service before Easter, Sometimes we mistakenly think that we are coming together to grieve and to lament the crucifixion of our Lord. But in response to that, let me take you back to what I said during the introduction to my sermon. Jesus knew exactly what kind of death he would suffer at the hands of men to secure our salvation. He committed himself to crucifixion. He was not a passive victim of Rome. He was the active savior of mankind. So if we are going to grieve, we shouldn't grieve over Jesus. He doesn't need our sympathy or our pity. We should instead grieve over our sin that sent him to the cross. Let's grieve over the myriads of others who reject his gospel. Let's grieve over the judgment of God that will be poured out on this sinful world. Those are good things to grieve for, but do not grieve for Jesus. He was on his way to victory. He knew it. We know it. As we go into verses 29 through 30, Jesus then speaks to these women of the coming judgment. He says, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and, onto the hill, and on the hills cover us. Jesus was here himself lamenting for Israel. Because he knew the judgment that was going to fall upon them. In the more immediate time frame, he's referring to the judgment of Jerusalem that was coming in 70 AD. Just about 40 years later, maybe a few years less, Rome sent General Titus to slaughter the entire city of Jerusalem at that time. On that day, women who were married with children would envy the barren women. Because the women with children would have to see their little ones suffer and die by the sword of the invading Roman army. On that day, there would be so much destruction, so much bloodshed. Indeed, history tells us that the Roman soldiers were literally having to step high and hard over so many bodies in the streets of Jerusalem. That the destruction, the bloodshed was so awful. Jesus says on that day they would plead for the surrounding hills and mountains to fall upon them, crushing them, delivering from the misery of their distress. That is why the people of Israel were more to be pitied. Because their rejection of Jesus was initiating their decimation. Jesus then concluded with a proverb of sorts in verse 31. He says in verse 31, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? You all know this. Green wood is wood that is freshly harvested. It has much more moisture in it. It's harder to burn, harder to catch fire. But dry wood, on the other hand, catches fire faster and it burns hotter. So Jesus is comparing himself to the green wood. He is life. He is innocent. And yet these evil men are casting him into the furnace of affliction. If this is what is happening to him, what do you think God is going to do with the old dry wood? That's his point. 
The religious leaders and the angry people and the mob who called for the crucifixion of Jesus, they had already claimed the awful responsibility for his murder. Back in Matthew 27, 25, literally the mob cried out to Pilate, his blood be on us and our children. They were going to answer for his blood. God's judgment was going to come upon this generation in a most horrific way. But it doesn't stop there, brothers and sisters. We also want to understand here the larger truth of history. You see, a time of judgment is approaching for the whole world. Jesus explained this through the parable of the weeds. Jesus said, and this is Matthew 13 again, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The day of judgment is coming. Paul likewise says this in the passage that Pastor Jim read this morning, 2 Thessalonians 1 which says the day is coming when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And Revelation chapter 6 uses similar words as Christ when it says that the powerful and the lowly of the earth, when his day of reckoning came, They hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There was a day of judgment that came upon Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. But there is a global day of reckoning that is coming, brothers and sisters. For all who reject Jesus. Are you ready for that day? And and lest you speak too quickly, let us remember, judgment begins with the house of God, with us. Are we ready? Are we prepared to answer to our Lord? Again, Jesus tells, you, tells us in Matthew 12, 36, even every careless word we used will be judged. How many careless words did I speak just yesterday? But here again is the good news of Christ our Savior, brothers and sisters. Jesus warns us of God's wrath so often so that we will seek him for his mercy. Jesus warns us of the coming wrath so often so that we will go to the one person, the one place where we find refuge, so that we will go to Christ our King and receive mercy instead of wrath. That that was the beauty of the messages we had this week during our missions conference. And if you weren't able to be here for all of them, I challenge you to go back and listen to them. They were so good, especially the last message, Tuesday evening's message on Jonah chapter 4. It was so rich in pointing us to this God of mercy that we are privileged to know through Jesus Christ our Lord. Faith in him is the only way to be saved from the coming judgment. 
The gospel is a message of wrath to those who harden themselves in wickedness. But it is a message of life and truth and grace of salvation to all who listen, to all who believe. The fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, we deserve the cross. But Jesus took it for us. He died in our place as our substitute so that we who deserve God's wrath could instead be lavished with the riches of God and the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. Even now, that call of the gospel is offered to you. I even call attention again to our younger people we pray for you. We pray for your salvation as you, as you are among us. Are you considering matters of your soul? Do you understand that this world is fading? This world is temporary? The things that you think give your life meaning here, the things that you think you want that would make your life good here are so temporary. They are but a breath compared to the span of eternity. Judgment is coming. Flee the wrath of God by running in faith to Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is our salvation. He is our refuge when that day of wrath will come upon the earth. Will you be found in him? And Christian, are you living in light of that day as it approaches? Are you living, are you waking each day, letting that prayer of your mouth be that prayer that our Savior himself would have us pray? Lord, if today is the day, make me ready. Help me this day to love Christ with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Help me to obey today. Not because I fear you, Lord, but because I love you and because your mercy and grace are poured out to me, giving me the very strength and desire to obey. Lord, help me to use my words righteously today, encouraging, uplifting, being kind, bearing witness, because I know I will give an account. I close with these words, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Go forward, believing in Jesus. Now it is right that this sermon would lead us into the table this morning. These elements, they represent the fact that we who have believed in him are reconciled to him. That we are welcome at his own table. Jesus Christ is the one who has secured our welcome here, our place here. So we do not come to this table by our merits. We are bid to come to this table by his merits. We do not come to this table merely to remember. We come to this table to be strengthened. Just as we pray to be strengthened, just as we come under the ministry of the word to be strengthened, we come to this table to be strengthened in our faith. If you were weak, come to Christ.
If you are in need of forgiveness, come to Christ. If you are seeking Him, draw near to Him and know Him more fully and see how His mercy grows and grows and grows in you and through you to others. You come. That being said, this is a meal just for believers. If you are here today and you you haven't trusted in Christ and and joined a a body of faith and and become an accountable member somewhere, that's, that's, that's what we're to do, to be prepared to come to this table. If that does not describe you, then allow these elements to pass by. This is for believers. If you are a believer here today seeking the Lord, if you're a believer here today seeking His will in, in your church membership, you come. But parents, also, if you have children who have not yet come to the place where they have believed, please help them to allow these elements to pass by. Let's go before the Lord in prayer, and then I'm going to ask our table servants to please come forward. Let's pray. Father God, your mercies are indeed new every day. It is our privilege to draw near to you. It is our privilege to know you. It is our privilege to be recipients of your grace and your mercy through Jesus Christ, our King. We are humbled even when we consider what he endured so that we might be spared wrath for our sin. So as we partake of these elements, let us meditate on what they represent. The bread, his body, the cup, his blood, broken and poured out for us. In your name we pray.